The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Well, unless you've been living under a rock, you've noticed that political discourse has started to heat up. Let me assure you up front before anybody gets scared, this is not going to be a political sermon. But what I do want to do is offer God's people some resources for dealing well with the kinds of conversations that are inevitably going to be going on, in which all of us, as citizens in a democratic republic, have responsibility to discharge our duties as citizens to vote and to be involved in the political discourse as we are led to. But I want to do that first by making some remarks on the nature of prophecy. So a lot of times, you will hear people when they are talking about political matters quoting passages out of Scripture. In fact, as somebody who dearly loves the Word of God and who uh, delights in studying it and who has spent countless hours seeking to mine its riches, I find it especially annoying when people will quote a single verse out of context as a justification for their particular political agenda, especially when if you simply take the way they read that verse and apply it to other verses, like, say, the one right before it, you would get a result that they would not appreciate at all. I think about when when there was a great deal of discussion about immigration not long ago, and somebody would say, well, it says right here that you shall be welcoming and hospitable to the alien among you. So you have to just go and do that right now. And I say, yeah, but that comes right after the verse that says you're supposed to burn witches. So maybe you need a little bit more sophisticated hermeneutic when it comes to some of these passages. I think one of the most important things to recognize when we come to the prophets is that the prophets were not progressives. I'll say that again. The prophets were not progressives. The prophets were radical. The word radical that we get comes from the Greek radix, which means root. That's also the place we get the word radish. That's not important. Just thought you might like to know. I like radish. But the word radix or root 
is where we get the idea of radical. Now, a lot of times you think of somebody who's radical as somebody who's out there, you know, throwing things around and blowing things up. But, but a radical, properly understood, is somebody who wants to go back to the very source, to the very root. And every time we hear the prophets warning the people, every time we hear the prophets pointing out to the people the ways in which they have failed to uphold the law that God has given them. Every time the prophets say, you remember that God said you will live according to this law I've given you. And if you live according to Torah, you will live and you will live well. But if you don't, then the land will vomit you out. And this is exactly the kind of scenario that Amos is contemplating. But when, uh, so, uh, and that, that's where we get the whole basket of ripe fruit thing at the front end of this reading from Amos. When he says a basket of ripe fruit, this is like ripe summer fruit, which is like radishes, also delicious. But he's saying this is something that is coming toward the end of the season. This is something that comes not at the beginning of the springtime. These aren't the the crocuses popping up out of the ground or the garlic ramps that show up at the very early part of the season. This is what's coming along as we're moving through the harvest time and something else is coming. No, he says that I'm, I'm showing you a basket of ripe fruit. God says, because the time is ripe for my people Israel and I will spare them no longer. He's warning of the destruction of the temple, warning of the exile of his people. And the reason is that they are trampling the needy, doing away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? It's not, God's not objecting to the fact that people are selling grain or marketing wheat. He has nothing against marketing. He has nothing against sales, and he has nothing for that matter against agriculture. His problem is with people wanting to shave off the last bits of the day that God called His people to set aside for rest, as rest not only for themselves, but for everybody in their households, even for their animals. These folks are looking to get an advantage, and you see that because they're skimping the measure, boosting the price, cheating with dishonest scales. If you've read Torah, and, and, and maybe you have and maybe you haven't, but if you read it, it's... it's it's fascinating, uh, not in the sense that all of the details are fascinating, but in the fact that there are so many details. There are so many details about maintaining honest weights and measures, about not moving boundary stones, admonitions to judges to judge justly and not to give people favoritism if they're rich or, for that matter, if they're poor, but to judge people justly based on the merits of their cases, not to take bribes. And so this kind of justice is what is being violated when people are buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. Evidently, there's a problem where the wheat was being stepped on. And he's sworn, Yahweh is sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything that they have done. See, Amos was calling God's people back to faithfulness to His good Torah, His good law that He had given them so that they would live well 
in the land. Amos and the other prophets, for that matter, aren't calling God's people to go beyond that. He's not calling on them to develop some new and improved version of Torah that they, wanna, that they should live by. No, the prophets are saying what God has given you is good. Live by what God has given you. The fact that you're failing to live by God, what God has given us is what has led to the situation that we're about to be in. And we have to remember, and I, I think this is especially important for us as Americans to remember this, that the prophets are speaking to a people who have a unique covenant relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The people who at Mount Sinai entered into a covenant and, 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 and who, in fact, reaffirmed that at multiple occasions we, we read about in the, in the Old Testament. And so they took upon themselves the yoke of Torah. They received God's good word. They said, yes, we will live. We will be your people. We will live according to your law. And God said, I will bless you abundantly as you do if you live according to it. If you don't, then you will encounter disaster. So these are laws that apply to a specific people at a specific time who were in a specific relationship with the God of Israel. Again, one of those verses that you find gets dropped out of context. And I, I saw this dropped in again in, on, on Twitter just this week. You may have heard Second Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and, and pray, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. Which, as a principle, you could say, yes, it would be great if all of us humbled ourselves and, and sought God's face, but there's no unique relationship between us and a particular land like the Israelites had with their land because their land was God's land that He had given them to steward. I'm not saying, don't hear, me, don't hear me wrong, it's not bad for us to be humble, it's not bad for us to pray, it's not bad for us to seek God's face. And it's certainly not bad for us to seek God's favor for the place that we live, for, him to, for us to ask for His blessings. But we have to understand that there is one nation in the history of the world that had that unique relationship with God. And this is the one we live in isn't it. There's a lot that I like about this country. But that's not part of our history. That's not part of the setup. We can't simply take particular promises made to certain people in Scripture and just apply them to ourselves willy-nilly. It would be like if you went to your neighbor's house and opened up his mailbox and you, you took the bank statements but you left the credit card bills in there. You don't get to pick and choose what promises are made to somebody else and make them yours. But again, it, the, the, and the prophets are, are so often cited and probably one of the most powerful preachers to use Amos in, in illuminating the points that he had to make in addressing our, our current situation was the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. And I know we've, we've learned some disturbing things about him in, in recent months, but, but King is especially famous for using the prophecies of, of Amos. And I'm reminded as, as uh, I think about King on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, like the prophets, Dr. King was calling the people to be not somebody other than who they were, not to follow some different sort of code, but simply to live up to who they were. The prophets call God's people to be God's people and to live 
according to Torah. King said, we are here because the declaration said that all men are created equal, but that's not being lived out as it needs to be. And so, in a sense, he said, we're, we're here to cash the check that the founders wrote. So the prophets are not progressive. The prophets are radical. You know who is progressive, though? Well, okay, it's Sunday morning, and if I ask you to guess, the answer to a question is probably going to be Jesus. Good, good, okay. Now, we're going to get into this a lot next year when we go through Matthew's gospel, uh, but, but Jesus, and, and, and again, Jesus is, is, is crystal clear. He said, don't think that I am coming to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish a single iota of them. I, in fact, heaven and earth will pass away before the tiniest little bit of law passes away, but I am here to fulfill them. And what we do see in Jesus, which we do not see in the prophets, is somebody who is taking Torah and who is developing our understanding of what it means. Someone who is taking it in further directions. Jesus does what the prophets do not do. And do you know why Jesus does that? It's because He is Jesus. Good, good. I'm, I appreciate David paying attention. Jesus can do that because He's Jesus. Can anybody else do that who's not Jesus? No. No, there's Jesus. I mean, in a lot of ways, the, kind of the, the fundamental, con- fundamental principle of theology is there's God and there's not God right? We get the name tag that says n- not God. Jesus gets the name tag that says God, right? If, if, you, if you miss that, everything else is going to be screwed up. Jesus, being God, is able to take His Torah and say, now you heard that it was said, you shall not murder. And now let me explain a little further what's behind that. Actually, if you hate somebody in your heart, then you've murdered them. I mean, just think of how many acts of homicide most of us are guilty of with respect to our spouse. I'm just being real here. How many times? Well, Jesus says, look, I'm trying to make it clear. Now, you you, you may think you can fulfill Torah. Actually, it's, it's, it's deeper than that. So Jesus is able to do that, and the reason that Jesus is able to do that is because, as Paul points out in his letter to the Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the one by whom all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things were created by him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. That's not true of anybody else. And He is the head of the body. He's the head of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, that in all things He might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood 
shed on the cross. That's true of Jesus, and that's not true of anybody else. It is true, as Paul says, that we were at one time alienated from God, enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior, but now God has reconciled us by Christ's physical body through death to present us holy in His sight, without blemish, free from accusation if we continue in our faith established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel you heard, the gospel that's been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a, a servant. And I've become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the Word of God in its fullness, the mystery once hidden for ages and generations, but now disclosed to the saints. And Paul, again, like the prophets, not progressive. He's radical. Getting back to the root of this message, this gospel of the new covenant in Christ. God kept it hidden for ages and generations, but then disclosed it to His faithful people to whom God chose to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We have no other hope for glory other than Christ in us. And so, I say to you, as my friends, as my brothers and sisters in Christ, as my fellow citizens. Let's keep all this in perspective. There's Christ in you, not some political agenda, not some candidate that is the hope of glory. I'm not saying those things aren't important. They are. And for some of us, we have a calling to be especially engaged and especially involved. All of us as citizens have responsibilities to vote in an informed way and to be in conversation in a responsible way with our neighbors on these things. But for many people, and a number of folks have made this observation, politics has replaced religion. Really, their politics has become their religion. They are engaged in far more devotion. They spend much more time reading posts on Facebook and Twitter than they do reading their Bibles. They spend much more time in front of the TV receiving teaching from various partisans than they do listening to sermons and worthy podcasts and reading the works of great theologians they engage in daily acts of devotion, opening up their apps and firing off their missives at one another. Again, some people have a particular calling to this, but for most of us, the time we may be spending on the one would be better spent in more noble pursuits. We've got to keep this all in perspective. It's Christ in you that is the hope of glory. Amen.